0: My name is Hunter Keegan, welcome back to Down Home Fear. This is part one of the Casey Anthony series that I did back in January of 2017. I am re-releasing an abridged version of it for the audience as we lead up to the new The Case for Casey Anthony miniseries. This installment of DHF explores the bizarre timeline and events between Kaylee's disappearance and Casey's arrest. Before we get into it, though, here's a little bit of background on why I was originally interested in this case. I normally tend to focus on more obscure stories for down-home fear, but the strange tale of Casey Anthony and the mysterious fate of her two-year-old daughter Kaylee was an obvious choice for the show. I was a teenager while the Casey Anthony debacle unfolded between her arrest in 2008 and acquittal in 2011. Based off of the mainstream media coverage that revolved around the case, my impression at the time was that a family had murdered a toddler either through abuse or neglect. I also recall seeing all of the scandalous tabloid photos of Casey partying at nightclubs, and I remember that the general public consensus was that this would be an open and shut case. How possibly could someone allow Casey to walk free after police found her daughter's skeleton in the backyard of her family's home? Many years later, in 2017, after down-home fear came to fruition, I was brainstorming new topics and Casey's infamous story was one of the first that crossed my mind. It wasn't just the shocking nature of the case that attracted me to it. After doing some cursory research, I realized that the whole story goes much deeper than people think. It's not just a matter of, oh yeah, some crazy woman killed her kid. It's not cut and dry like that. There were actually a ton of issues with the way police and prosecutors handled things that made the case largely fall apart in court and resulted in Casey being able to walk free after spending just a couple of years in jail serving time while awaiting her formal trial and sentencing. Do you remember our episode about Susan Smith? Her story was covered in episode 29 of Down Home Fear. She drowned her two young children in a car back in the 1990s. She let the car slowly roll into a lake in South Carolina with the toddlers strapped into their car seats. At first, she claimed a man had kidnapped her children and a massive nationwide manhunt ensued. After a couple of weeks passed, Susan admitted what had truly happened, and she was sentenced to life in prison for murder. It's one of the darkest stories I've ever covered on the show, and frankly, it still haunts me. What's scarier than a mother who seeks to harm her own child? Surely Casey Anthony and Susan Smith must fall under the same evil umbrella, right? There are certainly thematic parallels between the two stories mental illness, pathological lying, moral outrage, national media coverage, and, sadly, dead children. But are Casey Anthony and Susan Smith really in the same camp? In my opinion, Casey's story has too many missing pieces of information for us to simply label her as a psychomom, or whatever you want to call it. The fact is that we really do not know exactly what happened to Kaylee Anthony. We don't know if the death was accidental, intentional, or maybe even just a freak act of nature. Seriously, for all we know, anything could have happened to Kaylee. In part one of the original miniseries I did on Casey Anthony, I discussed the complicated web of events between the time of Kaylee's disappearance and Casey's arrest. Throughout most of the original miniseries, I relied primarily on a book by Jeff Ashton called Imperfect Justice. Jeff Ashton was the lead prosecutor in the case, a highly accomplished and experienced attorney who was hellbent on convicting Casey Anthony of first degree murder. His book was fascinating, and throughout the miniseries, series I used a lot of information from it. Despite him clearly having a biased perspective on the case, he was the lead prosecutor after all. I think he did a fairly good job of establishing detailed timelines, even if some of them may be speculative. I think he also did a good job of explaining the actual hard facts of the case in an objective manner. So let's all refresh our memories about the complex events surrounding Kaylee's initial disappearance and Casey's arrest. Try to think critically as you listen to this episode. Do you think the timeline of events makes any sense at all? What are the biggest red flags you see in Casey Anthony? What types of things should law enforcement have done differently early on in the investigation? Pay attention, because this story is crazy in every sense of the word.
1: Now, we're going to be talking about a really, really controversial story today. Uh, This is going to be the first part of a multi-part series involving the Casey Anthony case. This is arguably the most publicly scrutinized criminal trial since O.J. Simpson, and it is really complicated and really, really, as I said, controversial. Just a couple of quick disclaimers up front. I have my own opinions about this case. And throughout this series of episodes, I will voice them. And I just want to say, you do not have to agree with me on everything. And in fact, I don't expect anyone to agree with me 100% of the time. I just wanted to uh, be clear that I'm not really trying to convince you to fall one way or the other. Uh, There's a lot for me to learn, and I have learned a lot as I've been researching this story, but um, it's really just me kind of relaying the information as I have seen it and providing my own interpretation as well. With that said, I'm going to do my best to present both sides of the argument surrounding Casey Anthony and her trial. This is a um this is a story that does involve the death of a 2-year-old child, so it's inherently messed up and a bummer to talk about. So if you get really really um upset about that sort of thing, you you may want to skip this series, but I hope you'll at least try to stick with it. It's not particularly graphic, especially in this first part. Uh, I'm just going to be talking about the timeline of events leading up to the arrest of Casey Anthony and um, basically the time before uh her daughter Kaylee Anthony's body was discovered so it's not graphic I think it's interesting and without any other delay we'll get started I think that most people living in the United States have heard about this case. It is, like I said, one of the most notorious cases of the early 2000s. I reached out to listeners on the Facebook group before doing this story, and they told me what they could recall about the Casey Anthony case without looking anything up. And A lot of people were actually pretty spot on with the key general details. Uh, There was a mother who had apparently not reported her child missing. There was a car that may have had a odor of decomposition in it. So things like that quickly come to mind for many people who were alive and paying attention to mainstream news during that um during that trial and during that whole case as it unfolded just so we're all up to speed on what unfolded throughout the casey anthony trial i wanted to lay out a really simple timeline now this is a really bare bones version of what happened, but I just wanted to lay it out as a framework so people kind of know where this story is heading as you're listening to the details. In June of 2008, Kaylee Anthony, a two-year-old girl living in Orlando, Florida, goes missing. Her mother, 22-year-old Casey Anthony, does not report her as missing for 31 days. Because of the length of time that it took for the child to be reported missing, Casey Anthony is an immediate suspect, and she is arrested very quickly on charges of child neglect. This story gains instant popularity and infamy in the mainstream press and it becomes one of the most widely publicized stories of the year and will continue to be one of the most highly publicized stories for the next three years in December of 2008 Kaylee Anthony's body is discovered in a wooded area near the family home that Casey and Kaylee were living together in With Casey's parents, i.e. Kaylee's grandparents. In 2011, the case goes to trial and Casey is facing charges of capital murder, among other things. However, due to a variety of factors that we'll discuss in more detail later, she is found not guilty of the capital murder charges and essentially is let off with a slap on the wrist. Today, we're going to be talking about the very first months of this debacle from Kaylee's disappearance in June of 2008 up until mid-August of 2008. So we're going to talk about what happened during that month between Kaylee's disappearance and her eventually being reported missing, and we'll also talk about the weeks that immediately followed. The main source of information that I used for part one of this series is called Imperfect Justice, Prosecuting Casey Anthony. And as you may have guessed based off of the title, it was written by a prosecutor who worked on the case. His name is Jeff Ashton. So clearly there is a bit of bias in this book, but I want to make it clear that I just used it to establish the timeline leading up to Casey Anthony's arrest and the the first couple months of the investigation as I go throughout the future installments in this podcast series I'll be using other sources as well so we won't only be hearing from the perspective of the prosecutor from the case Let's set the stage. June 2008. Orlando, Florida, a major city with a population of over 2.3 million people. It's a major tourist destination with many famous attractions such as Disney World, Universal Studios, and many other acclaimed resorts and theme parks. Like much of Florida, it's in a tropical wetlands environment, and the summer heat is absolutely sweltering. On June 16th, 22-year-old Casey Anthony is seen by her father, George Anthony. She's leaving her parents' quiet suburban home where she has been staying with her daughter, Kaylee. Kaylee is with Casey at this time the two of them get into the car that Casey has been borrowing from her mother, a white 1998 Pontiac Sunfire. Ostensibly, she drives off to drop Kaylee with a babysitter before going to work at Universal Studios. This is the last time that Kaylee Anthony is seen alive. Kaylee is just two years old. She's Caucasian with sandy brown hair and large brown eyes her mother casey again 22 years of age is about five foot two inches tall thin with dark hair and dark eyes she has fair complexion and a narrow face probably what most people would consider to be conventionally attractive On July 13th, George Anthony finds a notice on his front door, saying that he has a certified letter waiting for him at the post office. After going to the post office, he finds a letter saying that his wife's vehicle, the 1998 Pontiac Sunfire that Casey had been borrowing several weeks earlier, had been impounded by a towing service after being found abandoned in the parking lot of a local gas station. Much to his dismay, George realizes that the car has been impounded for the last two weeks, which is concerning because all this time his daughter, Casey, has been periodically calling George and his wife, Cindy, telling them that she had taken the car to various non-local locations, even as far away as Jacksonville. Most concerning to George is that Casey had been last seen with her two-year-old daughter, So, if the car had been impounded and Casey hadn't really been traveling with Kaylee like she said that she was, where had the two of them been this whole time? When George goes to pick up the car from the impound lot, he would later say that he immediately noticed the distinct smell of human decomposition as he approached the vehicle. He recognized it from his days as a law enforcement officer many years earlier. He immediately opened the trunk of the car, concerned that Kaylee or Casey's body may be in it. Instead, he finds a bag of garbage and has one of the impound lot employees throw it away for him in a nearby dumpster. He drives back to his quiet, ordinary home, the rotten smell in the car so overpowering that he has to roll down the windows even though it's raining outside. When George pulls the car into the garage, his wife, Cindy, is waiting for him. Cindy says something that will later haunt her. She says, that car smells like death. Worried about her daughter and granddaughter's well-being, Cindy searches the car and finds the phone number of one of Casey's close friends, Amy. Cindy calls Amy, and Amy agrees to show her where Casey had been staying all along. The apartment of her new boyfriend, a man named Tony Lazaro, who had recently moved to the area, hoping to find work as a club promoter. Cindy collects Casey from Lazaro's apartment and immediately demands that Casey bring her to Kaylee. Casey begins making excuses about why they were unable to see Kaylee at the moment, and Cindy gets extremely aggravated, and after dropping Amy off, immediately dials 911 on her cell phone, while Casey is still sitting in the car next to her. So on this evening of July 15th, 2008, Cindy Anthony calls 911 and says that she wants to have her daughter, Casey, arrested for stealing the 1998 Pontiac Sunfire, which was now back in Cindy and George's possession, as well as stealing money from her bank accounts. Because Cindy said to the 911 operator that the car was now back in her possession, it was not a high priority for law enforcement at the time. Believing the matter to be primarily a family dispute The dispatcher instructed her to go back to her home and call police once she was at her house. Once back at the house, Cindy called 911 as instructed, but now she said that her granddaughter, Kaylee, was possibly missing. She also reiterated what she had said earlier about the stolen car and stolen money and urged the dispatcher to send someone to the house. Two hours later, Cindy Anthony places a third phone call to 911, now audibly distraught, saying that she discovered that her granddaughter had been kidnapped and that she had been missing for a month. Casey had told her that Kaylee's babysitter, a woman known as Zanny, had stolen her on June 16th, 31 days earlier. Cindy also mentioned to the 911 operator that there was a very strong odor in the vehicle. She says, it smells like there's been a dead body in the damn car. Here's a little bit of audio from this phone call.
2: I need to find her. Your daughter admitted that your, the baby is where? You said it took her a month ago that my daughter's been looking for. I told you my daughter was missing for a month. I just found her today, but I can't find my granddaughter. And she just admitted to me that she's been trying to find her herself. There's something wrong. I found my daughter's car today, and it smells like there's been a dead body in the damn car. Okay, what is the three-year-old's name? Kaylee. C-A-Y-L-E-E. Anthony. Kaylee Anthony? Yes. Okay, is she white, black, or Hispanic? She is white. How long has she been missing for? I have not seen her since the 7th of June. What is her date of birth? Um, eight. Eight, nine, 2000. Oh, God, she's three. She's 2005. <laughs> so it's Okay, I just I
1: need I Okay, so you can actually find the full audio of this uh this series of phone calls that Cindy Anthony made to nine one one throughout that evening. Um, online. I'll post a link to it on our uh, on our website and, and on all of our Facebook pages and stuff. But you can hear her saying that there's been uh, kidnapping and that there may have been a body in the car that uh, Casey was driving. You can also just most obviously hear how distressed Cindy Anthony sounds throughout this phone call. In the initial couple of phone calls, she sounded very composed. like She sounded angry, but she wasn't freaking out. In this call, though the last uh, phone call, you can tell that she's really just panicking and, uh, you know, doesn't really know what to do at this point. So what happens next is the 911 operator gets some more just basic information about Kaylee. Uh, You may have noticed that they were mistakenly referring to Kaylee as being three years old. Uh, That's because her birthday would have been just a couple of months after, um, after her disappearance. So they kind of, I guess, rounded up and Cindy told the 911 operator that Kaylee was three, even though she's technically two years old. Anyhow, they ask Cindy to put Casey on the phone and that's what I'll play next. What I really want you to do here is pay attention to the difference in tone of voice between Cindy, who you just heard, and Casey, and the way that they sound as they speak to this 911 operator.
2: Hello? Hello? Yes. Hi. Can you tell me what's going on a little bit? I'm sorry? Can you tell me a little bit what's going on? My daughter's been missing for the last 31 days. And you know who has her? I know who has her. I've tried to contact her. I actually received a phone call today now from a number that is no longer in service. I did get to speak to my daughter for about a moment, about a minute. Okay, she did you guys call and report a vehicle stolen? Um yes, my mom But now you're now you're three old okay, your three old daughter is missing. Kaylee Anthony. Yes. White Kaylee, female Kaylee Yes, white female. Three years old, eight nine, two thousand five 2005, her date of birth. And you last saw her a month ago? 31 days. Some 31 days. Who has her? Do you, have, do you have a name? Her name is Zenaiva Fernandez Gonzalez. Who is that? Babysitter? She's, she's been my nanny for about a year and a half, almost two years. And why, why are you calling now? Why didn't you call 31 days ago? I've been looking for her and have Gone through other resources to try to find her, which was stupid. Okay, can you can you give me the name of the the nanny again? Like spell it out for me. Zenaida, Z-E-N, A-I-D-A. Last name. Fernandez. Fernandez. Hyphen Gonzalez.
1: There are a couple of really huge key things that happen in that phone call and perhaps the most significant one, I believe, is the invention of this character, Zenaida Zani Hernandez-Gonzalez, who is the babysitter who allegedly abducted Kaylee a month earlier. That's probably the big one. The second key point is the almost, it's not quite calm, but it's definitely a much more subdued vocal tone compared to uh, Cindy Anthony's conversation with the 911 operator. Compared to that, you have Casey just kind of like mellow answering questions, almost matter-of-factly explaining that, oh, well, yes, one month, 31 days was how long that my daughter has been gone. And you can hear right away, the 911 operator has what I think most people's response would be, which is skepticism and says, "Mm, okay, why, why did you not report her missing earlier than that? Right after... Casey spells out the name of the fictitious babysitter and we'll get into why we know that that babysitter doesn't exist in just a little bit but right as she finishes explaining that the police arrive at the uh, Anthony residence and they come in and at that point the 911 call is over. Once the cops arrive they find that Cindy Anthony is hysterical, sobbing uncontrollably, can, can barely even focus on answering simple questions about, um, about Kaylee and about Casey. George Anthony is there as well at this point, and he is actually quite stoic and somber. And a lot of people initially attributed that to his background in law enforcement and kind of being used to being present for these sorts of very high-stress situations. But it's possible that there may have been an ulterior motive for that as well, which we'll get into on part two of this series. When Casey is interviewed by the police, she explains the following, On June 16th, she took Kaylee to the apartment of the babysitter, Zenaida, a.k.a. Zanny Fernandez-Gonzalez. Hey, this is Keegan with a quick interruption to my own story. I noticed as I was listening back to this audio that I accidentally referred to the nanny as Zenaida Fernandez a couple of times. The name that Casey gave to investigators was Hernandez with an H. So it's not a hugely critical detail, but it's something that was bothering me as I was listening back to this and I wanted to make sure that it was corrected. So again, the name was Zenaida Zani Hernandez Gonzalez. Back to the show. Mm -hmm. She had known Zanny for about a year and a half and was able to give a detailed description of Zanny, as well as give cops an address for her apartment that she ran the daycare out of. After dropping Kaylee off, Casey continued, she went to her job at Universal Studios where she worked as an event planner. Around 5 p.m. she went back to Zanny's apartment and Zanny was nowhere to be found and wouldn't answer her cell phone. Casey explained that she had waited out front of the apartment for 2 hours thinking that Zanny may have had car trouble. So I think that's, you know, probably a, a normal reaction, I guess. You don't immediately fear the worst in those sorts of situations, I suppose. But the problem with that is that Casey had also mentioned to the cops earlier during this detailed description of Zanny and the apartment that she lived in that Zanny had two roommates. So the police thought it was odd that neither of the roommates had arrived home at this point this late in the day either. So already the story is starting to appear to be quite suspicious. Casey said that after she had waited for two hours, she began to worry, and she started going around to familiar places in the area, parks, restaurants, uh, things like that, looking for Zanny and Kaylee. Eventually, she gave up and went to her new boyfriend, Tony Lazaro's place, because it was one of the few places she felt safe. Those are That's actually an exact quote from her, is that she felt that Tony Lazaro's apartment was one of the few places she felt safe. She said that she had spent the following weeks frantically searching for Kaylee on her own. She admitted to having stolen money and her mom's car, but said it was all so she could continue her search efforts. Um, okay, so... I... I have never had a a child who um, I was raising get stolen from me, and I don't know exactly what the general reaction in that situation is emotionally, but I do know that in terms of what you need to do, you don't fucking try to do this weird clandestine uh Mil- militia style search without contacting police that your 2-year-old toddler is now abducted. So this whole this whole situation is I think extremely fantastical the way she explains it and of course this this sentiment is echoed by many many other people throughout the rest of the investigation. So the cops asked her why why hadn't she immediately alerted authorities and she said that she feared for her daughter's safety because she'd seen movies where calling police could make matters worse. Hmm. So let's like okay so whatever that that isn't a satisfactory explanation to me, because she also, interestingly, and Jeff Ashton points this out in his book about the case and the trial and everything, is that he thought it was really curious that there was nothing mentioned about a ransom note at any point by Casey, because a ransom note is a another thing that you see a lot in movies, and that perhaps may have given her some reason to think that her, her daughter w- would be Injured or killed if the police were to become involved. But of course, there was no ransom note, there was no babysitter, there was no reason that Casey should not have contacted the authorities. The officers who were present for this initial questioning would go on to recall that she was unusually calm. Throughout, And the seasoned officers who were on scene all thought that was very strange. Casey also told police at this time that the woman Zanny had tried to contact her once during the last four weeks via phone, but that nothing was said and the call ended quickly. She could not remember the exact date or time of the call. Casey even claimed that earlier that morning, on July 15th, Kaylee had called her and tried to tell her what she had been doing, but Casey had instructed her to put an adult on the phone, and at that point, Kaylee hung up on her. The cops obviously thought this was all untrue but Casey was the only witness to whatever really did happen to Kaylee so they played along with her to get as much information as they possibly could. This is a standard evidence gathering procedure. Later that night after they had finished questioning her, Casey rode with police to the alleged apartment that Zanny had lived in. That she told the police officers the unit number and the building that the daycare that Zanny ran had allegedly been based out of. A police officer went to the unit and found that it was completely vacant. Throughout the evening, multiple police officers noted the amount of tension that there was between Casey and Cindy beyond just the general stress of the situation. One of the officers suggested later that the scene had had the undercurrents of an impending custody battle just boiling beneath the surface. So perhaps that's one explanation of the amount of tension between Casey and Cindy, or perhaps there are other possibilities. Yuri Melik, who was a very experienced and respected homicide investigator, arrived on the scene at the Anthony household around 4 o'clock a.m. So the cops had been there for several hours at this point. Once he was there, Malik went through Casey's written statements line by line with her, and he started grilling her a little bit more at this point, but she stuck to her original story. She said that the only people who she had confided in about Kaylee's abduction were her friend Jeff, who had who she had conveniently lost the contact information for, and a former co-worker of hers, Juliet, who she also had conveniently lost the contact information for. After this conversation, Malik and Casey rode together in an unmarked police car, and she directed him to Zanny's three other previous residences in the area. After a couple of hours of knocking on doors and trying to track down leads, the search for answers proved to be fruitless, and Melek drove Casey back to her parents’ house to drop her off. Before Melek drove away, George Anthony quickly approached his car and quietly told him that both he and his wife were very concerned that Casey was withholding information and that there had been a putrid smell in the trunk of the car after he picked it up from the impound lot. And Melek essentially responded by saying, I understand, sir, we'll be in touch as soon as possible. Melek spent the rest of that morning further investigating the various leads for this mysterious, zanny character, but he quickly confirmed that they were all complete bullshit. No one named Zenaida Fernandez-Gonzalez lived at any of the locations that Casey had indicated. Furthermore, the former co-worker of Casey is the one who she said she had worked together with at Universal Studios, turned out to never have been employed at that business. After contacting Universal Studios to check out the claims that Casey had made, Malik found that Casey herself didn't even work at Universal Studios. She had briefly worked at a souvenir shop there in April of 2006, but she had been fired and apparently had been lying to her family ever since about her employment. Malik wanted to catch Casey off guard and get some real answers from her. So he picked up Casey from her house and drove her with him to Universal Studios. He asked Casey to bring him to the desk that she worked at in the very, very large complex of different office buildings at Universal Studios. And of course, she wasn't even able to get into the complex because she didn't have the proper security badges or keys with her. Malik expected her to crumble pretty quickly given the circumstances, but instead he watched in complete disbelief as Casey insisted to the security guards that she was a current employee and needed to be let in so she could get to her event planning office. Eventually, the head of universal security allowed her to come in as long as she remained escorted by the police and by the universal studio security guards. So again, they're completely surprised that this is the turn that things are taking, but they follow her around this big office complex as she bafflingly tried to find her way to her quote-unquote office. After several minutes of this, she literally goes down a hallway in one of these buildings and finds herself at a dead end, at which point she turns around and half-laughingly says, okay, I don't really work here. The security staff at Universal Studios gave Melick a room to question KCN. At this point, Melick began directly calling out Casey on her lies, but she maintained across the board that she did not know where Kaylee was or what had happened to her. Melek and two other investigators began taking different approaches, trying to coax information out of Casey Anthony in order to secure the safe return of Kaylee. They even suggest at one point that perhaps Kaylee died in some sort of terrible accident, which I thought was kind of a weird and leading way to go with things. But I guess they were just trying every everything they could to get her to admit to some sort of knowledge that she was holding back. Eventually, Casey tells them a very vague statement. She says, I made the greatest mistake I ever could have as a parent. And throughout everything, she's very stoic and monotone, which is Mellick's exact words that he used, stoic and monotone. Not at all hysterical or even particularly upset as you would expect most parents would be, given the circumstances. Regardless, she stuck to her original story, and eventually the investigators gave up. She apologized for all the trouble her failure to report Kaylee missing had caused, and agreed to ride to the Orange County PD Central Operations Building to help make missing flyers for Kaylee. At this point, the investigators were convinced at the very least that Casey Anthony was guilty of child abuse and neglect. Her extended failure to report Kaylee missing constituted that. Melick briefly conferred with one of his fellow investigators while Casey waited in the lobby of the Police Department Central Operations Building. Melick feared that Casey may be a suicide risk and decided to arrest her then and there. Keep in mind, the cops have no material evidence that Casey was directly involved with Kaylee's disappearance at this point. Either way, they still made the decision right then and there, and Casey Anthony was arrested on the afternoon of July 16, 2008 for felony child neglect. known, even today, who Kaylee Anthony's father was. Casey told police that the biological father had died in a car accident before Kaylee was born, but it is unclear if this is true. Casey did have an ex-fiancé named Jesse Grund, who helped raise Kaylee for a few months, but he left Casey due to her personality becoming darker after Kaylee's birth. He was not considered a main suspect during the investigation. According to Jeff Ashton, the attorney who would go on to prosecute Casey Anthony, the popular working theory around the Orange County Police Department and Orange County State Attorney's Office that summer was that Kaylee had been hidden somewhere, perhaps with friends or extended family, by Casey in order to spite Cindy Anthony. At the suggestion of a fellow inmate, Casey would go on to acquire an attorney after her arrest. This attorney was named Jose Baez. It is unclear where she got the money to hire her attorney. After the initial hearing that Casey had with a judge, which is essentially just a simple hearing to establish probable cause for the arrest and to make sure that the defendant knows their rights and why they're under arrest and all of that. Casey was to be held without bond. During her first day in jail, Casey called her parents' house, not to ask about Kaylee's status, but rather to get her boyfriend Tony's phone number. Her mother, her brother, and a close friend of hers all talked to her during that phone call and expressed shock and confusion about why she was so concerned with getting Tony's number. There's a transcript of this call that I read, and the friend speaks to her and asks Casey, does Tony have anything to do with Kaylee? To which Casey flatly responds, no, Tony has nothing to do with Kaylee. Her friend then asks her, oh, so why do you want to talk to him? At which point Casey gets frustrated and hangs up the phone. The task for police was now to sift through all of the misinformation and lies that Casey had been weaving for them, and to determine if any of it had any shred of truth. Eventually, they did track down a woman named Zenaida Hernandez-Gonzalez, but they cleared her of any involvement the woman had never even met Casey Anthony before, and it is still unknown how she fell into Casey's web of lies in the first place. Interestingly, prior to Kaylee's disappearance, Casey Anthony had no criminal record. However, calls began coming into police stations from close friends of Casey's that painted her as a habitual liar and a thief. The boyfriend that Casey was so concerned with speaking with that first day in jail also called police. He called police the afternoon that Casey was arrested and immediately explained that they had been dating since early June of that year, and that she would frequently stay overnight at his place, but that he hadn't seen Kaylee with her during the time that she had been staying with him. He said that Kaylee was never mentioned by Casey as being in danger or missing She explained that Kaylee was always at the beach or at Universal Studios, staying at a childcare place, or staying with the nanny, so he didn't think too much of the child's absence. Jesse Grund, Casey's ex fiance also spoke with police, and he painted an equally concerning picture of Casey saying that she had claimed to have been pregnant with his child after they split, but that the child, Kaylee, ended up being from a different father. Grund had agreed to stick around and help raise the child, but that her personality had changed and that she had somehow become darker and that he just wasn't seeing the same person who he had known prior to Kaylee's birth. And because of that, they ended up, parting ways. On June 25th, approximately two weeks after Kaylee had gone missing, Casey had called Jesse Grund and offered to hang out with him for the weekend because Kaylee and the nanny had gone to the beach. Another interesting detail in the web of lies. While all of these disturbing reports about Casey were coming in to the police, the forensics unit was going to work on the Pontiac with the foul-smelling trunk. Investigators managed to recover the trash bag that had originally been in the trunk of the car, but found that it didn't contain anything immediately useful. So remember that trash bag that George Anthony found in the trunk and that was thrown away at the towing yard? He Uh, The investigators were actually able to find that and go through it and see what it contained. After finding that there wasn't anything immediately useful in the trash bag, or at least immediately relevant to the investigation, the car was inspected further. It was found to be well-maintained and clean, but that it did definitely have a distinct odor of decomposition. So that's exactly how the forensic analysts at the lab described the vehicle as having an odor of decomposition. The worst smell was in the trunk of the vehicle. They saw that the trunk had also been vacuumed recently, but that there was still some dirt residue on the carpet lining. They found several strands of human hair in the vehicle as well specifically in the trunk. A cadaver dog was brought in and got multiple hits on the trunk of the car, which indicated that there may have been a decomposing body in the trunk at some point. They later brought the same dog to the Anthony residence, and the dog got hit in the backyard where Kaylee would have played on a little, uh, sort of like a little... Playhouse that George Anthony had set up in the backyard for her. Originally, a judge named Stan Strickland was to preside over the Casey Anthony case. Jeff Ashton described him as a reasonably competent but not experienced judge when it came to handling high-profile cases. During the bond hearing for Casey Anthony, which was on July 22nd, The evidence regarding the case was reviewed, and Casey Anthony's family came and testified about her being a good mother and a good person. Cindy Anthony even suggested that Casey was being blackmailed by someone, and that's why she wasn't more forthcoming with the evidence regarding Kaylee's whereabouts. This is a complete 180-degree turn on her attitude toward Casey just a week before when she called 911 to report that Casey had stolen her vehicle stolen her money, and lied to her about the whereabouts of her d- granddaughter. At the conclusion of the hearing, Judge Strickland set bond at $500,000 for Casey because this was a felony child neglect case. None of the family could afford this, so Casey went back to jail for the time being. In Jeff Ashton's book, he mentions that in the coming weeks, Cindy Anthony would began to believe apparently every lie that Casey told her. She insisted that Casey was somehow fabricating stories in order to protect Kaylee and the Anthony family. George Anthony, however, still had serious reservations about Casey and requested a private meeting, i.e. without Cindy's presence, with Malik, the homicide investigator, and a couple of the other officers who had been involved with the case up to this point. During this meeting, George Anthony suggested that Kaylee was what had caused the odor of decomposition in the trunk of the Pontiac. He also suggested that Kaylee may have accidentally drowned in the above-ground pool that was in his backyard. He said that this was because he remembered a day where he saw the ladder to the pool had been left up and that the gate to his backyard had been left open, which was unusual. And upon reviewing his case notes later, Malik realized that Cindy Anthony had mentioned the very same incident to him on July 16th, the night that Kaylee was finally reported missing. As we go through the future installments in this series, we'll see that George Anthony is a much more complicated character than we perhaps would be led to believe up to this point. Just something to keep in mind. On July 24th, Casey met with two psychiatrists as ordered by Judge Strickland. Both of the psychiatrists said that she showed no signs of mental illness, which personally I do not believe at all. Also during this meeting with the psychiatrists, Casey stated that she had never been physically or sexually abused at any point in her life. One of the psychiatrists did note that she seemed unusually happy considering the circumstances. And just to interject a little bit of my own opinion on this, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a doctor, I do have a Bachelor of Science degree in psychology, so I know a little bit about this sort of stuff. And one of the things I noticed throughout my research for this first installment to the podcast series was that she has a lot of examples of what is called flatness of affect and it's something that you find a lot in cluster b personality disorders so cluster b is like antisocial personality disorder narcissistic personality disorder borderline personality disorder those are examples of disorders that fall under that uh cluster and one of the things you find with people who are um exhibiting antisocial personality disorder, as to use one example, is that things that really upset quote-unquote normal people or average neurotypical people do not really phase them. So, for example, a child dying in an accidental drowning, that would devastate most parents, most family members. But for them for people who have these sorts of neurological disorders they don't they don't interpret it the same way from an emotional standpoint and the flatness of affect is mentioned by numerous investigators it's certainly mentioned by Jeff Ashton in his book and even uh I mean even family members initially were confused at her kind of blasé attitude toward her child's alleged abduction. Going further forward from that, uh, one of the other things you see is pathological lying with these sorts of um, mental health problems. And this story about her going to Universal Studios and delusionally attempting to convince people these police officers and these security guards who worked there that she was really an employee that's insane that's n- not normal behavior i don't know what her end game was i don't know what what she was thinking walking through these random hallways and these office buildings at this universal studios place but it didn't have any sort of goal to it. It was just her trying to avoid telling the truth and trying to take the lie as far as she possibly could until eventually she literally was at a dead end and could not continue lying any longer. So that's just um that's just one thought that I had. I think that when you take all of that into um, consideration along with the stealing and the, the other atypical behaviors, destructive behaviors that she engaged in. It's very, very concerning. And I think that maybe one of the reasons that the two psychiatrists that, that assessed her during that initial, um, A couple of weeks in jail, it it may have been that she presented very well, because that's another thing that you see with people who are narcissistic, with people who are are antisocial. They can, in some cases, they, they actually know how to present very well. They're very manipulative. They know how to smile and nod and act engaged. So something to think about there. Again, this isn't a formal diagnosis. It's just something that with my background, I pay attention to these sorts of things. And I think they're kind of fascinating. So I thought I'd throw that in here as well. Throughout the next month and a half or so that Casey spent in jail, her family would periodically come to visit her and speak with her. And this is what the prosecutors uh, internally began calling the quote-unquote jailhouse conversations. These conversations were recorded and later analyzed by Jeff Ashton and others who were trying to get a better look at the family dynamic of the Anthonys. And just to quickly summarize them, because they're not quite as dramatic or earth shattering as you may expect unfortunately for our purposes but I read through um, some of the highlights in Jeff Ashton's book and they start out innocuously enough kind of like oh we miss you so much blah 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 you know kind of like standard things you would say Um, but George and Cindy Anthony continued trying to get information out of Casey about the location of Kaylee. And Casey would frequently get kind of upset and defensive when they did this, which I, um, to play devil's advocate, I I don't think that's an unusual reaction to have. If if you're someone who's been placed in that situation, of course, you're going to be defensive if people are All accusing you of being a terrible parent and possibly a murderer and all these other things. Anyhow, the, the last jailhouse conversation that they had was on August 14th. And in that conversation, Cindy Anthony is at her wits end. She appears disheveled. She appears like she hasn't slept at all recently this also would have been right around Kaylee's uh, birthday so I think that probably made it additionally emotionally difficult and that conversation they have it starts out normally enough Casey is really kind of bubbly and bright-eyed and acting really really friendly and warm and at this point Cindy explains that a new theory has emerged saying that Kaylee may have drowned in the pool in the family's backyard. And Casey's response is pretty kind of like sarcastic. She's just like, oh, surprise, surprise. And at this point, with her kind of dismissive attitude, It comes to a boiling point with Cindy and George finally openly expressing how exasperated they are with Casey, and they get in this argument, and Casey starts kind of ranting at them about how she doesn't deserve to be in jail, and she's just as much a victim as anyone else, and this is the last of the so-called jailhouse conversations. By mid-August, the police publicly announced that they had still found no credible information supporting that Kaylee was kidnapped. Resources began turning to focus on forensic leads. been wondering what exactly Casey Anthony had been doing for that 31-day period that her daughter had been missing. I have in front of me an abbreviated timeline that was used by investigators in the summer and early fall of 2008. This timeline tracks Casey's whereabouts for that one-month period, Because this timeline was developed by investigators during the time period I mentioned, it does not reflect the version of events that would later be offered by Casey's defense team. Nonetheless, many of the events listed are indisputable based off of photographic evidence, statements made by Casey's family and friends, and phone records. As we get into part two of this series, I will discuss the alternative timelines. June 16th 2008. Kaylee Anthony is last seen alive. George Anthony states that he saw Casey and Kaylee leaving his house around 12:50 p.m. Kaylee was wearing a blue jean skirt, pink shirt, white tennis shoes, and white rimmed sunglasses. She also wore a white backpack with monkey designs on it. Casey said that they were going to spend the night at the nanny's house. Cell phone records confirmed Casey was in the vicinity of the Anthony home that day until 4 p.m., however. It is not known if she ever returned to the house that afternoon. Casey is later seen that night with Tony Lazaro renting a movie from Blockbuster around 8 o'clock p.m. We know this because of security camera footage from that Blockbuster location. Kaylee is not with him and and Tony is, says that he never saw Kaylee that day. The following afternoon of June 17th, Casey returns home driving the white Pontiac that her mother has let her borrow. A neighbor confirms that he had seen the car backed into the garage. No one else is home at this time, and no one knows exactly what she did there that afternoon. She does, however, call Cindy later that evening to inform her that she and Kaylee are staying at Zanny's house for another night. Zanny is, of course, the nickname for the fictitious character Zenaida Hernandez-Gonzalez. On this evening, she is not staying with that person, obviously, but she is staying with her boyfriend, Tony Lazaro. On June 18th, Casey goes back to her parents' house around 1 p.m., She once again backs the Pontiac into the garage and this time asks a neighbor if she can borrow a shovel to do some yard work. She returns it about an hour later, the shovel appearing clean and unused. She then drives back to Tony's apartment. She calls her mother that night and says she will be going to Tampa for a work-related conference and is bringing Kaylee with her. She would be returning on June 20th, she says. During that time period from June 19th to June 20th, Casey hangs out with Tony. She goes to the Fusion nightclub where Tony works and participates in a hot body contest, dancing and drinking with many of her and Tony's friends. This is the now infamous event where photos were taken of her wearing a blue party dress and laughing and having a great time that would later go on to be posted all over tabloids and major news channels. From June 20th to June 23rd, she continues living with Tony, still telling her mom that she's in Tampa for work. At some point during this time period, Casey's car runs out of gas and she asks Tony to drive to George Anthony's house so she can steal two of George's gas cans from the shed. She has stolen George's gas cans in the past. On June 24th, Casey returns to her parents' house not realizing that her father, George, is still home. She is flustered and says that she needs to get insurance papers from her bedroom due to a car accident. This car accident is, of course, made up and never occurred. George goes to the car to get his gas cans out of the trunk, at which point Casey freaks out and runs to the trunk of the car and gets the cans herself. She then shoves them into George's hands before speeding off in the vehicle. June 25th to June 26th, she is still staying with Tony, and she begins mentioning to friends that she had run over a squirrel and that it was, quote, plastered to the frame of the Pontiac and makes the car reek. On June 27th, she is seen partying once again at the Fusion nightclub. June 28th to June 30th, Casey calls Cindy and explains that she and Kaylee are staying with a friend at the Universal Hard Rock Hotel, which is located in Orlando. This is when Cindy Anthony starts becoming suspicious. By this point, Casey had left the Pontiac illegally parked at a gas station near Tony's apartment. Jeff Ashton, the prosecutor, notes in his book that he thought that this was particularly strange because it, more than anything else she had done so far, was going to call attention to her. On June 30th, the Pontiac is towed. She had left it parked next to a dumpster. The prosecution said that this was to help hide the smell of the vehicle. From July 1st to July 3rd, there are more suspicious lies made to Cindy explaining Casey's continued absence and assuring her that everything is okay. Casey gets a tattoo that says Bella Vita on her left shoulder. She told the tattoo artist about her daughter and said that she'd bring her along next time she got a tattoo, and uh, Bella Vita, for the record, means the good life, so I guess if you're into irony, that would be it. Casey continues going out to eat at restaurants and go clubbing during this time period as well. Meanwhile, her mother, Cindy, is trying to track her down. She has her son, Lee, create a MySpace page for her where she posts a passive-aggressive message about betrayal and sadness with the intention of Casey finding it. The subject line was, My Kaylee is Missing. On July 4th, Casey goes out partying. She sees the MySpace post from her mom and responds on the post that she is an adult and that Cindy needs to leave her alone. She says that she is pursuing a relationship with a man who lives in Jacksonville. From July 5th through July 8th, it's just more continued lies from Casey. She tells Cindy about being in Jacksonville with a wealthy and loving boyfriend, when of course she was still staying at Tony Lazaro's place. On July 8th, Casey drives to friends to the airport and manages to snatch one of their wallets and checkbooks. She proceeds to go on a shopping spree, spending a couple hundred dollars on food, lingerie, beer, clothing, and other miscellaneous items. She does not buy anything that a toddler would need. We fast forward to July 13th, where George Anthony finds the notice from the post office on his door. Due to various matters, he won't be able to go to the post office right away. Two days later, on July 15th, Casey picks up her two friends from the airport, but not before writing another check to herself for $250. She tells them that she has spoken with Kaylee earlier that day. Meanwhile, George Anthony goes to the post office and finds that his car has been towed. He goes to the impound lot to pick it up and puts into motion the events that will lead to Casey's arrest.
0: If there's one thing we learned about Casey Anthony during this episode, it's that she loves to lie. A lot. Claiming that there was an abduction by Zanny, the imaginary babysitter, leading police on a wild goose chase through Universal Studios. I mean seriously, where does it end? Why would someone who's innocent go to such extreme lengths to be deceptive? It just doesn't make any sense. But what if Casey truly does have a mental health problem? Jose Baez, her attorney, wrote in his own book, which is called Presumed Guilty, that when he first met Casey, he immediately got the sense that police should have picked up on that Quote, we're not dealing with someone who's playing with a full deck here. Baez further wrote that by the time Casey led cops to her office at Universal Studios, they should have been thinking, this is a person who has built some kind of fantasy world. Someone who lives within a mythical reality. Could he be right? We'll expand on that more further along in the case for Casey Anthony miniseries. As you've just heard me discuss in part one of the original miniseries, I suspect that Casey Anthony could possibly suffer from some type of personality disorder. And I don't say that lightly. I hate to throw mental health terms around like that. But in this particular case, with the information that we have, it truly does seem that there is a mental illness component involved at some level. And as I continue to read Baez's book in preparation for making the case for Casey Anthony, I will evaluate this opinion and determine if it may hold validity. There are many more dramatic twists and turns in this story to come, but as fascinating as this story is, let's just take a moment to remember that today in 2022, there could have been a bright young girl named Kaylee getting ready to enter her freshman year of high school, but there's not, there's only an empty space. And the tragic reason for this cold fact continues to elude everyone, maybe even Casey Anthony herself. My name is Hunter Keegan. Thank you for listening to this, the 37th episode of Down Home Fear. To follow me and the many, many different projects I work on, add me on Twitter at HHKeegan or visit my website, hhkeegan.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts so far. Reach out to me and maybe we can bounce theories off of each other. I'm serious. That's the beauty of social media, after all. Until next time, stay safe out there and do something good for yourself. <music>